0: just honor those that we typically think of as mothers, but also those who are mothers by adoption, maybe you're fostering, you're mothering those children, or maybe you're a spiritual mother and you have been discipling somebody here and pouring into them and and loving and serving, and as Paul mentions, of, of those ladies who have washed the feet of the saints, We want to honor you. You have loved, you have cared, and you have served the saints of this church, the people in your home, those in your workplace, and you are much to be praised and honored. And so we want to thank you. We are blessed because of you. But I also want to acknowledge that that Mother's Day can also be a really painful time. It can be a hurtful season Maybe as you reflect on your own inability, maybe to have children of your own, or maybe you have lost a child, and, and this time reminds you of that, or you've lost a mother. And so I know that this can be also a very painful Sunday, and we want to be mindful of that as well. And the good news is, is that we, we bring our joys and our griefs to the Lord. And he receives us in all that. And so we, we thank you for being here. And thank you as we worshiped and we've gotten to sing together. And so this time I'd like us to go to the Lord in prayer and then we'll turn to the scripture. Dearly Father, we come to you in your Son's name um, because it's only as we stand hidden in the cross as we stand united to Christ and by faith that we can boldly proceed to your throne. And and yet we can do it boldly. We can do it confidently knowing that you hear us. And and this morning, we want to lift up our our motherly figures to you. Um, That includes all the gamut here, both those who are rejoicing this morning and those who grieve. And Lord, we thank you for the gift of of motherhood, We've been impacted by the women in our lives. And, and Lord, how you have beautifully fashioned uh, women and gifted them to serve and, and express your love, care, and service uh, to the least of these, to all of these. And so, Lord, we thank you for them. And Lord, I pray that as we rejoice with our families and with our mothers, those of us who have the privilege of doing that, that we would honor those women in our lives, but also, Lord, that those who are grieving, Lord, may we put an arm around them and and they may be reminded that they have gained an eternal family uh, and that they have been adopted into the family of God. And may we rejoice and be comforted with those truths. Now, Lord, as we turn to the truth of your word, please give us hearts to receive, eyes to see, and ears to hear. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 42. Hear the word of the Lord. Jesus says this, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you, And take your tunic. Let them have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Then each and every one of us, there is an impulse. There is an urge within us to retaliate, isn't there? When we're wronged, it just swells up. It gets us. For me, it's often while I'm driving. Uh, Someone cuts me off. Someone pulls out in front of me or annoys me with their inferior driving abilities. And there's something within me that wishes my car turned into the Batmobile. Or a tank. And, and, and then there's a little sanctified element. I, I wouldn't like, destroy them. I'd just nudge them off the road. And if there was some mechanism that could just slide a note on their window that says, you're driving like an idiot, that's why this happened. And then the Holy Spirit comes upon me and convicts me. My wife is looking at me with disgust and disapproval. And the Holy Spirit says, you, you, you are a pastor, you are a believer, and then I, I repent of my thoughts. I assume the reason you're laughing is because you've had some of the same vile thoughts of your own when you're driving, so I feel like I'm in good company. Well, here in Matthew 5, 38 through 42, Jesus confronts the sinful inclination of our hearts for revenge whether it's on the road or in other matters. And and he again does so by correcting some false thinking, some incorrect thinking. And he's been doing this. If you've been with us in the Sermon on the Mount, he's been doing this uh, since verse 21 as he's addressed anger, lust, divorce, oaths, and now he's doing it with retaliation. And he's doing so by correcting an incorrect understanding of the Scripture. A passage of scripture that's been distorted that's kind of become common parlance and, and, and spoken uh, amongst the people but they've misunderstood and he brings up this passage, it comes from the Old Testament Exodus 21-24 an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth maybe you've you've heard that phrase and you didn't know that was in the Bible, yeah it was in the Bible and Jesus says you you've heard this. But I want you to know that this command that was given by Moses concerning retribution for personal injury, it wasn't given to you as grounds for personal vendettas. It wasn't given to you so that that you could take matters into your own hands. Oh, you've done to me? Well, then I will do likewise to you. That That wasn't the intent. Rather, it was a legal legal, uh, phrase. It was a legal system to produce protection to ensure that a punishment actually fit the crime. That's what it was. It was a corporate matter. And and sometimes we forget that about Old Testament texts in Israel. This is a theocracy. This is a government system And this is how this nation will operate, and the law is like their constitution, their their rule book, if you will, their laws. And so on the one hand, it would keep this verse, and there was more to it. It wasn't just an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. There were all sorts of listings. But on the one hand, it was to keep a judge from too harshly punishing someone. It was to bring protection. You do something, and and maybe that judge has it out to get against you. That priest, well, well, he's limited by the by these terms. But it, the, the the opposite spectrum is true as well. Maybe this judge is your neighbor and your friend. It's to keep him from being too lenient on you. And we have similar systems of justice today for same reasons. Nevertheless, this law was perverted amongst the people, and it was perverted into giving them license for revenge. You know what the Bible says, an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. Just honoring the Lord. It was used for taking matters into your own hands when you were wronged. And so Jesus here is not overturning the law. Rather, he's properly interpreting it. He's giving its right application, its right understanding. After all, Jesus said in verse 17, he's not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He's bringing its full intent, its full expression in his personhood. And in this case, this is what Jesus is doing. He's not instructing... Well, let me say this this way. Let me tell you what he's not doing. He's not instructing Christians in some form of pacifism or advocating for the elimination of the criminal justice system. Rather, he's saying the law of just retribution was not put in place for your personal pursuit of vindication and revenge. Some people have misunderstood this passage in, in taking it to the opposite extreme that we should be pacifists. You think of maybe Mennonites. This is where they, they would base some of this Or some extreme version of of the Anabaptist movement, or advocating just the elimination of the justice system altogether. We kind of see some of that going on in our own day. We don't need this. Well, I can tell you that's not going well for Haiti, it's anarchy. And Jesus is saying this, and this is usually the push. Well, because these systems of justice, they're not just. Therefore, we 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 need to do it without them. Well, Jesus doesn't go that route. Jesus says that what I'm about to say to you is true, even if the justice system seems to be against you. That's what he's getting after. Remember the closing Beatitudes in chapter 5, verses 10 through 12? We got it up on the screen. These two beatitudes. Blessed are are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. These beatitudes, verses 3 through 12 are are fleshed out in in these in teaching sections of Jesus. And really this is what he's talking about. Blessed are you when you're persecuted. Now let me show you how you're to respond when that when you're wronged. When evil is done to you. And so Jesus says, contrary to popular opinion that you should get even with your adversary, get this, Jesus says, not even to resist them. Do you see that? Verse 39, do not resist the one who is evil. Are you serious, Jesus? Don't even put up a fight? I can't retaliate, but I just got to let it happen? Yeah. We're going to talk about what that looks like. His argument is this that his that he is bringing forth a kingdom ethic. And this is an area that I think Christians evangelicals are horribly poor at. We don't think about ethics anymore. We're opportunist. Capitalism to its extreme degrees. And we don't have ethics, let alone a Christian ethic. And they're not consistent. They only fit our agenda. And Jesus says, I'm done with agendas. And he says, I, I've got a kingdom ethic for you. And this ethic includes the virtue of non-retaliation. That's it. A virtue that should mark us as Christians that they are non-retaliators. They're not vengeful. They're not vindictive. They don't have vendettas. That's what Jesus says. And this virtue, couched in the Beatitudes, lets us know that there's great reward for us in that regard. There's great joy and blessing from God. And so as one Bible teacher has said, Jesus is showing us that revenge is poison. We think it's good for us. Jesus says it's poison, it will kill you. It will burn within you, and it brings destruction. My kingdom is better than that. My kingdom brings life. My kingdom brings righteousness. My kingdom brings love and care and joy. And that ethic doesn't bring that about. Come follow me, Jesus says. And so for this reason, I want us to see That the virtue of non-retaliation, that's kind of a negative way of saying it, the positive way is the beatitude. Blessed are the peacemakers. That's what he's getting after. We're going to put some flesh on that. Blessed, what does it mean to be peacemakers? It means we're non-retaliators. And I want us to see that this virtue of peacemaking aligns with the heart of God. And it was perfectly exemplified by our Lord Jesus, who entrusted himself to the Father who judges justly. That's what Pastor Gary read from 1 Peter chapter 2. All those areas where you're being uh, 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 treated unjustly, Jesus has set you an example. Because if you think about the cross, all the things that we're gonna see, Jesus did. And as we look to the cross, as we look to Jesus as our example, and we follow him, here's the hope that we have. At the proper time, the Father will exalt you. And the question will be for us this morning, do we believe he's good? Do we believe at the proper time, he will vindicate you? that he will do you good and not harm. Because when we take matters into our own hands, we're saying, God, I don't think you'll take care of this. I don't think you're good. I've got to take it in my own hands. In other words, what I want us to get to this morning is is that we would grow in our understanding of the heart of God. And in so doing, we would cultivate peacemaking hearts. Because the more we know Christ, the more we'll be peacemakers. And so to this end, Jesus shockingly addresses our propensity to defend four areas of our life. To defend, number one, our honor. Number two, our well-being. Number three, our liberties, our independence. And number four, our assets. And this is what Jesus is going to say. Let it all go for the sake of the kingdom. Let it all go. Because this is God's will for your life. That book doesn't sell, does it? And I don't think that's what the Frozen song, Let It Go, was all about either. (laughs) Let's first consider our propensity for retaliation when we're defending our honor. Jesus says in verse 39, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now when we hear that, we're thinking about someone punching us, giving us a nice right hook. And, and, and we're like, Jesus, are you serious? I get punched in the face? I'm gonna, all right, hey, you missed with the other cheek. Let me, let me, let me get it set up for you. That's not really what Jesus saying he's not talking about letting someone slap you around or this doesn't apply, if you, or I think this has been falsely understood, in some sense of all, eliminating all matters of self-defense and in your home or protecting your family. No, what he's talking about is times when you're insulted. Now, that might be a slap in the face. In fact, we have a saying. If we're, I'm insulted, and we might say, you know, that was a slap in the face. Literally, we weren't slapped in the face, but we were insulted. Our honor was dishonored, if you will. But the culture that Jesus is, is in and was an honor-shame culture. And so to be slapped in the face was, was a sign of rebuke, of dishonor, of public humiliation. Before someone, you might imagine like uh, seeing in movies or something. You've you've seen maybe uh, those who are in power uh, backhand a child, get away, or or a woman or another man. Almost like you're you're nothing to me. That's that's the picture that Jesus has in mind for us. And in an honor shame culture, this isn't our culture. A family, a clan, or village shares honor collectively. We don't think of it that way. In this way, what one individual does can bring honor to the village, to the family, to the tribe, to the clan, or it can bring shame and dishonor to everyone. Talk about that kind of pressure. And so if one is shamed, if you're Backhanded in public, and everyone sees it. It's not just oh, oh no, this has happened to me. No, no, I've got to bear the weight that I've let the entire family down. And so, what often would happen is retaliation was due because I must stand up for the the clan. And it might look like, and this is actually where much of the feuds in the, in the Middle East are over internal. It is just the the cycle of retribution happening. And so one is killed or one is dishonored, those rise up and then they go do likewise. And they get tit for tat. Our culture is not completely void of these things, but it's far more individualistic. I mean, there is a sense in which there's honor. I think we would see it in a family. Uh, maybe if a, a child is wayward where it does bring shame or, or think about it when a child does well, uh, a family is proud. But it's not the same degree as maybe an honor-shame culture. Our culture has the virtue, though, of don't care what anybody thinks, right? That's the, cult- that's the virtue. I'm not saying it's an actual virtue. But it's the virtue that our world puts forth, our culture puts forth. And we try to convince ourselves that, that, that I don't care what anybody thinks, and it creates a very big independence in us. Unlike an Asian culture, we teach our kids to be whoever they want to be and don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Now, I'm not saying that's necessarily bad. But we instill an individualism from from birth that isn't true of other cultures. And I think we take it to an extreme and we lose something. What's a beautiful picture of family and community? Where uh, honor-shame culture is, you know, you you will carry on the traditions of your family. And that can have an abuse too. For us, though, family is less important. We can create family as we will almost. It's voluntary. Well, I'll just leave the home. I'm done with you, family. I'll go start my own. Or we go to college and we find a group or we find whatever special interest and then we just create families and then once we're wronged, well, that's fine. I'll just go to the next one. We're very individualistic in that sense. We're not committed to the family or the community in that way. Either way, regardless if we're in an honor-shame culture or or in an individualistic culture like ours, Jesus is talking about how you respond when you are shamed. Or maybe think of it this way, when you're embarrassed. Have you ever been embarrassed by somebody? Someone embarrasses you? The hurt that's in you? That's what he's talking about. To turn the other cheek is to receive the shame and not seek your own honor. And for us, that could be a direct insult. But more often, it's an embarrassment we have when someone rejects us, right? Have you ever been rejected in a relationship you want? Maybe a friendship? Maybe a girl? A group of people that you so badly want acceptance from, and they reject you? And we do this weird phenomenon. We want them so much, they've rejected us. Now we hurt, we want them to experience the pain that we feel. And so we treat them poorly. Or maybe you've been passed over for a job or promotion and and you're embarrassed because you thought it was in the bag. Or maybe you've been fired and humiliated and told you're no good at something. And you're hurt. Or maybe it could just be you're not able to do what everyone else is able to do. I think about this as our our teenagers. Your parents embarrass you because they won't let you do what everybody else is doing. And so you get vindictive with them. But the same can happen with us adults. I can't do what you can do because I don't have the money or I don't have the health. And we become vindictive because we're not included. It's all based on honor. In these times, we lash out or or we can become vindictive to repay those with hurt who have hurt us. And Jesus is saying, don't do that. Jesus says, as my fathers, you are to be distinct. You're to cultivate the virtue of peacemaking or or non-retaliation. Because if you retaliate tit for tat, You just continue the cycle of destruction. And I'm about life. But if you turn the other cheek, if you humbly absorb it, you actually overcome evil with good. How do you do that? Peter says it. 1 Peter 2, 13 through 25. Number one, you'll expose the, the fullest ignorance of those who treat you harshly. If you don't respond in like kind, it it exposes their evil, that you're no threat, that you're humble, you're sweet, you're good. But on the other hand, it shows that you're following in the footsteps of Jesus. Remember what the uh, Beatitude says. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great. For so they perse- persecuted the prophets who were before you. You find yourself in the same line with Jesus. And he leads to life. Let's think about Jesus for a moment. Jesus, as he was delivered over to crucifixion, Matthew, I think, makes some connections here. He was spit upon, he was punched, and he was slapped in the face, Matthew 26, 67. And Peter reminds us that when reviled, he did not revile in return. Rather, what did he do? He entrusted himself to the Father who judges justly. And what was his reward? You might be saying, there wasn't no reward there. It was Death. It was humiliation. But at the proper time, the third day, he was raised from the dead. And he exalted and given the name on which every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. At the proper time. And Jesus says, you follow me and I will share my reward with you. Do you believe that? Do you? Brothers and sisters, do you believe that God will vindicate you and exalt you at the proper time? Or do you doubt him and take matters into your own hands? Because when we're shamed and dishonored for the name of Christ, we're called to endure for a time. And our endurance actually will shine a light upon our good works, our character, bringing glory to our heavenly Father who is in heaven. And so if this is true concerning honor, the same can be said about our well-being. This is where Jesus goes, and we'll, we'll pick up the pace here. When we're talking about our well-being, we're talking about our happiness, right? We're talking about our livelihood, our security, our, our comfortability. I heard someone say this uh, recently, and I think this was insightful, and maybe this is you today. Our culture, our generation is on a happiness pursuit. We're less concerned about what's true. We don't care. I just want to be happy. It's like a Stevie Nicks' song, Tell Me Lies, Tell Me Sweet Little Lies. Some of you are like, What kind of music do you listen to? Our, our culture, I don't care if it's a lie as long as it makes me happy. And Jesus is saying, It won't, it's poison. And this is what he's getting after your well-being, and so he gives another example, which concerns now a legal suit by 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 a wicked person, an evil person, and, and you're taken to court <clears throat> wrongly. And get this, you lose, you lose in court, and the picture here is, is that you have nothing left except the clothes on your back. And in court, uh, in the ancient Near East, you would you'd give your tunic. Now, what's your tunic? It's equivalent of our undershirt today, except it would go all the way down to your feet. And then you had a cloak. That was your coat. And Jesus says, well, well, first, yes, they'll ask for your tunic, which was a a, a pledge of collateral, till you paid your debt and ensure you come back. sometimes. Here we go to a pawn shop, here, here's a wedding band, and, and, and intend I'll, I'll come back and, and pay off my debts. But Jesus says, you lose in court, and they say, give us your shirt, give them your cloak too. Now, he's obviously talking in hyperbole here, he's exaggerating. And, and the good thing is, is when we watch the New Testament, we don't see the apostles running around naked, Okay? So so chill out. But he's giving us a sense of when you're wrongly brought to court and they're exacting you for everything you have, don't put up a fight. Give it to them. He'll talk about this later. Do you have treasure on earth or do you have your treasure in heaven? Because if you have that perspective, this is very different. If this is the world you're living for, well, then, then you won't give it up. You're giving up everything. Now, we don't really kind of identify with this. We're, we're largely in a, a, a healthy, freeing context here in America where we don't have to. I mean, very few. I mean, I'm sure there's examples, but none of us, I don't think, are fearing going to get taken to court for persecution's sake. We don't find ourselves under this uh, kind of uh, setting, but I would say most of the world, most of our brothers around the world, this is exactly how persecution happens. You're falsely taken to court, and they're exacting you for everything you have, and they pry upon the poor and, 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 and take them. And so while we don't experience this ourselves, here's where I would challenge you to think. You may find yourself being unfairly treated, maybe in court, or maybe it's in some other setting at your workplace where a dispute has occurred and the arbitrators don't rule in your favor. And you don't get what you want. Jesus says, let it go. Coming back to the scenario Jesus presents, though, I could see something like this happening in the near future. I don't don't know how long, but um, where the courts could rule something like this, churches that do not comply with the state's stance on marriage and sexuality will no longer be tax-exempt. And not only that, if you want the public services of police and fire and utilities and all all the things that just kind of come with being citizens, well, you're going to have to pay for it. This probably isn't going to happen at the church level first. It's probably going to happen at the college and university level. And already, if you talk at that level, um, they're preparing. Schools are preparing for this. Because they don't have to, Christian schools, they don't have to pay taxes. That's a lot of money. And you know what? That can sink an institution quickly. And they'll go there, and then they'll move down, Then they'll move down. It's kind of like a funnel system. On an individual level, this is happening all the time in places like Pakistan. Um, talking to a good friend of mine, Keith McCord and Baptist, they've, they've got a missionary and, and and people they've adopted in Pakistan, and, and we hear about those who get released. Well, there's hundreds of others who don't. Hundreds. And here's how they get arrested, and they get beaten, and they get exacted for all that they have. They break what's called blasphemy laws. Blasphemy laws are, are you're caught trying to convert somebody from Islam to Christianity, or you just say something... Uh, irreverent towards Allah or Muhammad. And so neighbor lies and says, you did this. Creates a text that you didn't take and then takes it to the authorities and you're imprisoned. You know what most of us think? Oh no, I'm gonna pull out my forty-five and I'm gonna take them all out. And Jesus says, put your gun away. You live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. That was right as they were coming and Jesus had been falsely betrayed. And the mobs and the Roman soldiers were coming to take him away. And this was actually what Jesus was finally charged with, blasphemy. And they set it all up. It It was a total sham. And yet we saw how he entrusted himself to the Lord. Same can be said when defending our liberty, verse 41. This one's a little bit more in line with our culture. And though we, we certainly experience it differently than Jesus is going to speak of here, I think we do experience it. He says in verse 41, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. A mile was a Roman measurement, not a Jewish one. And it was a reminder of the fact that it was legal in the Roman Empire for a soldier to... For any reason, take a civilian and say, hey, carry my swords, my weapons, my backpack. And you could force them for any reason to do and carry or do whatever you ask them for up to a mile. And it was just a little bit shorter than our mile. We actually see this um, done later in the gospel with Simon of Cyrene, where they pull him out of the crowd and they force him to carry the beam. I mean, just total jerk move, right? You're trying to do what you're, you're trying to do, and the Roman soldier sees you over there and says, Hey, you, you're going with me for a mile. Here's all my stuff. Pick it up. I'll meet you there. Now, think about how you would respond. Jesus says, Don't just go with them one, go with them two miles. And we're not under a foreign rule where this may happen to us. But you may experience such belittling treatment, maybe by a boss that you serve under, some sort of superior who forces you to do menial tasks for them so they can kick back and relax, and you're just humiliated and doesn't let you do what you need to do. And so similar to defending your honor, you we build up with embitteredness and anger, saying, I shouldn't have to put up with this junk. He treats me like I'm nothing. Like I'm just here to do his bidding. And we get mad. But Jesus says, when you're done doing the menial task, this is what you need to do. You go back and you say, sir, ma'am, what else can I do for you today? What else can I do? Soldier, I know we've gone one mile. Where else are you going? Can I carry this even further for you? Which would have been totally off, taking them off guard. This is what we, where we get our saying, going the extra mile. And in doing so, yeah, you may set yourself up. For more menial tasks, more humiliation, more dishonor, more disregard, but you may also endear yourself to the one who's taking advantage of you. Peter writes that it's in times like these that you are to be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks for the reason, the hope that is in you. Why are you doing this? That's not how everybody else responds, which seems justified. I mean, that's, that's, that's honorable in our culture. This would be totally contrasting. Why do you do that? And in that case, you would respond, well, I'm a follower of Jesus, who suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. He, my Savior, he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So too, I'm here. I bear the name of Christ. I've not come to be served, but to serve. To give my life on behalf of others. As a Christian, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. With that attitude, Jesus finally calls us to forsake defending our own assets. Verse 42. Jesus goes on to say, Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, if reading that, 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 that verse, maybe that passage has brought you much guilt when you pass the guy at the exit on the interstate who's holding the sign. Or you're walking downtown and someone is asking you for money. Is that that what Jesus is talking about? Is he talking about you, you need to give to every single person who ever asks you? That's not what he's saying. And so, not saying you shouldn't have a compassionate heart. But he's not talking about giving to every beggar on the street every time you see, you're checking out the grocery, and they want you to donate to the Boys and Girls Club or to whatever charity that's going on, or even things going on here at the church. Jesus is not making some blanket statement that we should just shell out all our assets and become poor. Just as he doesn't intend for you to lose all your clothing and walk around naked. No. He's not intending to teach us to take poverty, give everything we have so that they may be rich, and then we just become poor, and then we're in the same position, and that would be some endless weird cycle. All right, I'm poor. Follow Jesus. Give me all your stuff. It doesn't work that way. Here's what we need to keep in mind, the context of what he's talking about. These instructions are in the context of retaliation against an evildoer. Someone who has wronged you. In this case, we could surmise this. Someone who has dishonored you. Someone who has harmed you. And someone who has stripped you of your liberty. And that someone comes to you and says, I need your help. That's who he's talking about. I need your help. And our first inclination is, well, where were you? You didn't help me when I needed help. You were part of that crowd laughing at me. You abandoned me. You wouldn't help. You didn't help. And now you want my help? Jesus says, don't close your heart to that person. Don't close your heart to them. It's easy for us to justify our withholding of help and aid when we think they don't deserve it, right? Right? And I would venture to say every single one of us, if we're paying attention right now, says, yep, I've done that. Someone wrongs you, if you ever say this, I'm done with them. Someone doesn't do exactly what you like, I'm not working with them anymore, I'm done. That's fine, I won't hang out with them anymore, I'm just gonna keep my distance. I've washed my hands of those people. And then what you're saying is, good luck on your own, you didn't need me. Don't come knocking at my door. And Jesus says, when they come knocking at your door, you you help them. You help them. You don't turn a blind eye to their well-being, even though they turn a blind eye to yours. This is how Paul puts it in Romans 12. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. I think it's up on the screen here in a minute. Beloved, never avenge yourselves but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, so don't retaliate, but to the contrary. I wonder where Paul got this. If your enemy is hungry, what? Feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Tom Schreiner summarizes Paul's point this way. He says, we are to be so free from vengeance that we delight in doing good to those who hate us. We're to be so free from vengeance, Jesus is calling to us, Paul's calling us to, that we delight in doing good to those who are our enemies. I think of Jesus. Every time I close my heart to somebody who does me wrong, you know what comes to my mind? Jesus washing Judas' feet. Brought him to the meal, served him, washed his feet, and the whole time he knows my friend has already betrayed me. He already has the knife in his back he doesn't take it out and shove it in Judas's. He washes his feet. Jesus' teaching on the virtue of peacemaking and non-retaliation only makes sense, brothers and sisters, if we understand the gospel. And this may be pressing you. Do I really get this? Do I really know the heart of God? Do I really Understand what God has done for me and how God in Christ has dealt with us? Let me flip this around. Though we have dishonored Jesus' name through our own rebellion and sin, Jesus absorbed our guilt and shame on the cross. Though we demanded that God give us everything and we would take him for every penny that he has, Christ freely gave us his life on the cross. Though we have treated God with contempt and tried to get him to be in subjection to us, he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for you. And though we did all this, when we came at the end of ourselves and realized our helpless estate and begged him for mercy, he did not harden his heart toward us. He extended his mercy toward us. Though we did not deserve it. Brothers and sisters, that's the beauty of the gospel. And our love will grow much when we understand how much we've been loved. And so we are given an example from Christ. I encourage you, read read 1 Peter. It's all about getting wronged at every level. And he just says, remember what Jesus did? And God didn't abandon him. And here's why I want to encourage us. God didn't abandon, won't abandon us either. And as we're peacemakers, we'll be salt and light. Let me ask you, this is rhetorical, wouldn't you want to be a part of a kingdom like that? A king who Who's merciful like Jesus, who are people who would treat you like Jesus is, is asking, that don't retaliate when you wrong them? Maybe you've experienced that kind of love and it filled your heart with love. That's what our Savior is about. and I hope that that's be what this church is about as we go around saying loving Jesus, loving people, helping people love Jesus, this is what we're talking about. All right, well, let's pray, and we'll sing. Father, amazing love, how sweet the sound. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Save a wretch like me. Lord, please fill our heart with your love. Help us know your love in a greater way from this sermon, from this passage. And Lord, as we go out today, Lord, surely there are people that we are in a vindictive war with. May we walk out of here peacemakers because we realize you have made peace with us and your son. And Lord, it's our prayer that as the world comes in contact with us, Oh, that they would come in contact with Jesus. May that occur, Lord. Lord, that kind of love cannot come from us. And so, Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit fill us with your word. Let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, overflowing in love towards others. And it's in Jesus' name we beg and we pray.